0: Man, that song is awesome. Luke chapter 7 this morning. Luke chapter 7 is where we'll be if you want to turn there. The words will be up on the screen, but like last week, we'll be jumping around a little bit so it might help to have it in front of you. And we're going to start in verse 36. When the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, If this man were a prophet, he would know who is touching him and what kind of woman she is, that she is a sinner. Jesus answered him, Simon, I have something to tell you. Tell me, teacher, he said. Two people owed money to a certain moneylender. One owed him 500 denarii, the other 50. Neither of them had the money to pay him back, so he forgave the debts of both. Now... Which of them will love him more? Simon replied, I suppose the one who had a bigger debt forgiven. You've judged correctly, Jesus said. Then he turned toward the woman and said to Simon, do you see this woman? I came into your house. You did not give me any water for my feet, but she wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You did not give me a kiss, but this woman from the time I entered has not stopped kissing my feet. You did not put oil on my head, but she has poured perfume on my feet. Therefore I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven, as her great love has shown. But whoever has been forgiven little, loves little. Then Jesus said to her, your sins are forgiven. The other guests began to say among themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? Jesus said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. In 2007, I read a book that some of you might have read as well or might have heard of called Unchristian. It's a book published by the Barna Polling Group. And to create this book, what the polling group did is they surveyed thousands of people in the United States who are not Christians, who don't identify with the Christian faith, asking them what they think about Christians and about the church. A very convicting book demonstrated, and this is back in 2007, that we have something of an image problem in our country and in our culture. Take a look at the five top words that this survey turned up about how non-Christians view Christians. The number one word, judgmental. And then you have anti-homosexual, sheltered, hypocritical, and too political. Now, I wanna point out, this list hurts a little bit to see, it hurts a lot, But I want to point out we're supposed to look different from the world. Jesus promised that the world would hate us and deliberately misrepresent and misunderstand us. So you wouldn't expect from non-Christians to get a list like, they're the most generous, compassionate people in the world, because then they'd want to come be Christians. We're talking to people who have rejected what we believe here. Uh, But I want to zero in on just one of these words this morning. The word that stings me personally the most, and that's the highlighted word up there, judgmental. I've been talking a lot with people the last few years who are in a rapidly growing demographic in America of people who are ex-Christians. It's not that they didn't grow up in the church, they did. Their parents took them to church, raised them in the church, and then after they moved out, went to college or whatever, they stopped going to church, they abandoned that faith. This is a rapidly growing group among millennials and now among Gen Z as they're going to college. And when I talk to people in this group, there's a certain story that I hear all the time. It's a story about how this person went to church and they got treated unfairly by Christians. Or they got, they got even treated cruelly by what a lot of them call church people. Sometimes it's something that they blew out of proportion. Sometimes they're not being fair and sometimes they're using something like this as a pretext to avoid the claims of God. They were looking for a reason to quit going to church and they found it in the people there. But a sad amount of the time, people have stories that are completely true, that are completely fair. I'm sure some of you have some of these stories too about a time when judgmental Christians came between you and Christ. When Christ's followers who are the church were the ones driving people away from church. Our story today, the story that we just read, is all about a judgmental church person named Simon the Pharisee, and he was trying in the story to keep somebody out, and at first when you read the story, you think it's this sinful woman. He sees her, he knows she's a sinner, and he wants to play the gatekeeper and keep her out, but if you look more closely at the story, the person he's really trying to keep out, even more than her, is Jesus. This is always the case when we judge people. When we're judging people and trying to be the gatekeepers at church, we think we're trying to keep out the sinners, the sinful people, but the person that we're really holding at arm's length, who we're really keeping out every time is Jesus. We're not keeping them out of church, we're keeping Jesus out of our own hearts. I wanna confess to all of you this morning the reason that word judgmental jumps off the list at me is because this is a huge struggle for me. I struggle a lot with being a judgmental person. I'm guessing a lot of you do too, but I, I just gotta confess, confession is a biblical command and I wanna tell you I judge people. I, I judge people like it's my full-time job. I see people, I judge them, it's like when they hit your hammer in the knee-jerk reaction, it's a reflex. I've trained my mind unintentionally to look for cues in the way people act and talk and how they present themselves that help me to judge them and sort them. Any of you ever sort people into categories? Maybe you know what that feels like. You walk into a room and it's like, who who here is on my team and who's not on my team? Who's like me and who's not like me? Who are the people who are in and out? And you're always collecting all these different clues and pieces of evidence to build your case for people or against them. It makes me feel comfortable to judge people when I'm insecure, but a lot of times, if I'm being honest, what this does is it helps me hold people at arm's length instead of taking them seriously. By judging people, I can slap a label on them, a stereotype. I can caricaturize and simplify them so that I don't have to really engage with who they are and what they actually believe. For example, if I was at a dinner party with a bunch of my friends sitting around a table and a woman came in and got down on the floor and started crying on somebody's feet and then dumped out an entire bottle of perfume on the floor. When I try to put myself into the story that we just read, I would be judging this woman. More on this later, but if this is your struggle too, if that resonates with you, keep this in mind as we talk about this story. This is a story about a proud Pharisee who judged a sinful woman, but it's really a story about a proud Pharisee and a sinful woman who both judged Jesus. Take a look back at verse 39 at what this Pharisee said, and this is our if sentence for the week. In this series, we're talking about the word if, more on that later, but take a look at this sentence. He says, if This man were a prophet, he would know who is touching him and what kind of woman she is, that she is a sinner. Why did Simon the Pharisee invite Jesus over for dinner in the first place? Well, here's my theory, and I'll show you where I get this. My theory is that the whole reason this dinner happened, the whole reason this Pharisee invited Jesus over in the first place, was to judge him, was to decide if he's real or not. And the story is full of clues. First, the dinner. When you start reading this story, you might think what I thought, why is the woman there? Like if he thinks she's so sinful, such a dirty and bad person, why is she at your house? Why did you invite her to your party? Well, when I started to read about this, what I learned is dinners, ancient uh, dinners like this, especially high and fancy dinners that had prestigious guests, were often open to the public. It's kind of a weird custom, we don't do anything like this today, but you would have a dinner at your house, you would invite prestigious people, and then you would open your doors that the public could come in and sort of spectate. They weren't invited to eat or to be part of the conversation, but they could come in and they could watch. And uh, that's what's happening here. That's why this woman is here at the house. Simon the Pharisee seems to have caught wind of some young upstart rabbi gaining a huge following and did he go out to the countryside or go out to the temple to try and find Jesus there and listen to him or was this invitation his way of saying no you come to me so that I can decide who you are we don't know but either way Simon is excited to have over this prestigious guest in front of his friends and his plan is to cross-examine Jesus in front of everybody and prove that he's not who he says he is Maybe I'm just judging Simon, like I said. I struggle with judging people. But there's two places I'm getting this in our story. First, Simon is disrespectful towards Jesus in the way that he treats him. Jesus calls him out in front of everybody. He withholds all the common formalities that you would show to somebody who came over to your house. He doesn't offer Jesus water to wash his feet. Everybody would have done that to any guest that came through their door. He doesn't greet him with a kiss, which is customary. That's how they greeted each other. That's disrespectful. He didn't put oil on his head, which is a sign of honor and respect. So, right out of the gate, Simon invites over a guest of honor, but he's not treating him like it. And second, when this woman comes up to his honored guest and starts touching his feet, starts kissing his feet, and Simon thinks she's so dirty and beneath him and gross, he doesn't try to stop her. He doesn't try to drive her away or chase her away from his honored guest like you'd think he would do if he was so appalled. Instead, he sits back and judges. His first thought is how he can use this woman to discredit Jesus in his mind and heart. He folds his arms and he thinks, checkmate. If this man were really a prophet, he would know who she is, so he's clearly nothing special, and now everybody at my party can see the proof. We've been talking about the word if. For the last two weeks it's a special word and what it does is it creates a fork that's why we have this sign up here on the screen that's what that shows it makes a crossroads and it forces you to choose a path what the word if does is it enables us to cast out with our imagination and create a possible world and explore it and then we can make decisions in the real world and here in this story simon is using this word if But the farthest he can possibly conceive is that Jesus might be a prophet, certainly not the Son of God. And even then, he's eager to jump on the first opportunity to discredit him and dismiss him. On the other hand, you've got the woman, the sinful woman. When she shows up, she seems to have already made her decision. She seems to have already decided who Jesus is before she gets there. How do we know? because she brought this really expensive jar of perfume with her to the party. This was a premeditated act. She didn't invite Jesus to her house party to judge him. At some point, she's already encountered him, or he found her, and now she's trying to get closer. And in order to get closer to Jesus, she's willing to absolutely humiliate herself. A lot of people assume this woman is a prostitute. The text doesn't say how she gained this reputation for being sinful. I think that's a reasonable interpretation. We don't know, just given the context. The text doesn't say what her sins are. Luke, the author, doesn't say, and the people at the party thought she was a sinner. Luke says she was a sinner. It's a fact. She must have known that when she came to this party, she was walking into the lion's den at Simon the Pharisee's house. I'm sure she expected to get turned away at the door or kicked out once she was recognized, but I'm also sure that somebody like this doesn't really care. She's made her choice. She's faced her if at the crossroads and she's decided who Jesus is. So in the story, when she shows up and starts treating Jesus like this, he ignores her. Did you notice? He doesn't say a word to her. She's crying on his feet, she's wiping them with her hair and he doesn't even talk to her. He turns to Simon. There's somebody in the room who clearly believes and someone who doesn't, so Jesus starts with the doubter. Did you notice in verse 40 how it starts? We've got the sentences up on the screen, and in the, the sentence that you see up there, Simon didn't say it out loud. He thought it to himself. He, thought, he thinks this in his head, but in verse 40 it says, Jesus answered him. So Jesus is answering something that Simon thought in his head, which is ironic, right out of the gate because it proves Jesus is a prophet. He's prophetically reading Simon's mind and answering him in his doubt about whether Jesus is a prophet. So right out of the gate, Jesus is playing on another level. Before we get to this admittedly strange parable that Jesus tells. Keep in mind what's going on here. I wanna talk about this parable about these two guys and the debt they owed, but in order to understand this parable, you have to keep in mind what's happening in the room while he's speaking. It's probably dead silent in the room. It was a fancy dinner at a nice house, a lot of people, but I bet you could hear a pin drop in this room right now. There's a woman with a bad reputation laying on the floor next to the table, weeping all over Jesus' feet and rubbing his feet with her hair. The entire room is saturated with the smell from an entire bottle of perfume that she just dumped out on the floor. There's a big puddle of perfume spreading out around Jesus' feet where she dumped it. And all during this parable while Jesus is talking, you can hear her weeping in the background. And Jesus doesn't stop her. He doesn't even speak to her yet. He looks straight at Simon while this is happening to him, and he tells a story. He's completely content to just let the awkwardness of the situation provide the backdrop for the point that he's about to make. So that's what's going on while he tells a story. That's the context that can help us understand that. So let's start with the punchline of the parable. Here it is. He says, whoever has been forgiven little loves little. Okay, that's how the parable ends in verse 47 two debtors owed money to the same moneylender. One of them has a huge debt. One of them has a little debt. The moneylender forgives both. And Jesus asks Simon the easiest question in the world, who's going to love him more? Simon says, duh, the guy who had the bigger debt forgiven is going to love him more. And not only does Jesus say, Simon, you're absolutely correct about that. He goes even further and says this, people in general who have been forgiven less, they don't love as much. Does this story make you feel a little bit uncomfortable? Maybe it's just me. Does this make you feel a little uncomfortable? It makes it sound like in order to love God more, you need to sin more so he can forgive you more. Do you see the math there behind, behind what Jesus is saying? It makes it sound like unless you get forgiven for a lot of sins, you're not even capable of loving God as much. Jesus gives the answer to this right in the middle of the parable if you're paying attention if we read the parable through Simon's eyes, picturing what's happening in the room while he says it. See, when Jesus mentions there's two debtors, One with a big debt, one with a small debt. Simon is thinking, what I thought when I first read the story and what you might have thought when you first heard it. The big debtor represents the sinful woman, obviously. She's sinful, so she owes a huge debt. The small debtor represents Simon the Pharisee, right? She's a known sinner. Her reputation is so bad, she walks through the door and people just cringe. And then you've got Simon the Pharisee. Not only is he a student of God's law, knows it backwards and forwards, he's the teacher. He's the enforcer of God's law. But look at what Jesus says, how he applies the parable. He resets the scoreboard between Simon and this woman at zero to zero, right? Starts it over from scratch and he starts calculating their righteousness just based on this evening, just based on their behavior at this party. Forget your previous reputation. Right there in front of everybody, Jesus rips this guy to pieces. He completely humiliates Simon to take the focus off this woman who's humiliating herself and he does it in a way that must have stung somebody like Simon the most. He attacks his manners. He says, you are a terrible host. Simon didn't wash Jesus' feet, but this sinful woman is doing it with her tears. Simon didn't greet Jesus with a kiss, but this woman has not stopped kissing his feet. Simon didn't anoint Jesus with oil. She's poured perfume on his feet. If you just look at this one party, just starting tonight, this woman versus Simon, it's three to zero on the scale of righteous works that they're doing. Now, Jesus doesn't care about keeping score with righteous works. The Bible's completely clear, but he knows that's how Simon is thinking. He's saying, even if we were playing this game by your own rules, keeping tabs on righteousness, she's winning in this room tonight. And somebody as image-focused as Simon would have immediately seen that what Jesus was saying, why he said all that, was to show Simon his place in the parable. Jesus was not saying that Simon owes the little debt and the woman owes the big debt, okay? That is not the point of this story at all. Jesus is saying Simon sees himself as owing a little debt and sees the woman as owing a big debt. What's the reality? Everybody owes 500 denarii. Everybody owes 5 billion denarii. Everybody owes infinite denarii. You cannot calculate how great your debt is. Some of us just don't know how great our debt is because we're too busy comparing ourselves to others. That's what this parable means. There is no guy who owes a small debt, who's incapable of loving God as much as the guy who owes the big debt. That guy doesn't exist, but you know who does? The self-righteous churchgoer. The arrogant legalist. The holier-than-thou judgmentalist who thinks I owe God a smaller debt than the rest of these sinners and God should be grateful to have somebody like me on his team. This is not a story about a sinful woman and a righteous Pharisee. It's a story about a humble sinner and an arrogant sinner. Which one are you? Take a look at what the New Testament teaches about sin. James chapter 2 verse 10 says, whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles at just one point is guilty of breaking all of it. Romans 3 says, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and all are justified freely by grace through the redemption that came through Christ Jesus. Look at what these verses say. If you keep the entire law every second of your life and you stumble at just one point, you might as well have broken the whole thing. If you read Jesus' parable and you're thinking in your head, well, what about all the good people who owe the little debt? They don't owe very much. You're saying they can't love Jesus as much as all the bad people who owe the big debts? Then you don't understand humanity. And I think maybe you don't understand the gospel. There are no good people. There are no people who owe small debts. All have sinned. Breaking one law means you've broken all of it. There are just bad people, and people who overestimate themselves. In Luke 5, when Jesus says, it's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. He's not saying, I'm not here to save righteous people. He's saying, there are no righteous people. You're all sick. You're all sinners. I'm the only hope you have. It's just, do you recognize that or not? Let's talk about that word judgmental. Because there's a lot of ex-Christians in this growing demographic, and that's the first word that comes to their mind when they think about us. So let's talk about judgmental. People who say, I don't wanna go to church because those Christians there, they just judge me. I used to go there, I grew up there, but I don't wanna go back because all church people do is judge each other. Simon saw this woman come into his house. He did not even think whether she might benefit from hearing Jesus' teaching or could be changed by the power of God. Look back at what he said. He said, She doesn't belong here, and if he were a prophet, he would know that. Sitting here in church this morning, who doesn't belong here? Who doesn't belong here? Let's be honest. I wanna talk to our college students about this one, actually, uh, and the youth group, too, actually, while we're at it, for that matter. Somebody's here who you know was out Friday night drinking. They go to, he was at Northgate, she was at that house party, he hangs out with that group of friends. I saw her at the liquor store. They party on Friday and Saturday. They think they can party all weekend and then come to church on Sunday and act like nothing happened. Those partiers, they don't belong here with us Christians. They're a bunch of hypocrites. If this Jesus was really a prophet and was here at church right now, he would know what kind of man that is who's singing to him this morning, what kind of woman that is who's praying him today. He would would know that they're sinners. Sitting here and looking around in church right now, who doesn't belong? You know, everybody knows she sleeps around. Everybody knows that he goes on dates with anybody. They've been with I don't know how many people. I heard he's gay or she's a lesbian. I heard he's a porn addict. All of these sinners, they think they can go out all week long and act however they want and do whatever they want and then walk into our clean church on Sunday morning like there's nothing wrong and God won't know how dirty they are. If Jesus was really a prophet, he would see right through their act. He would know what kind of sick hypocrites they are who live like that the rest of the week. Right now in this room, who doesn't belong in here with all the rest of us clean and tidy Christians? Do you know what he does for a living? You know they got a divorce, right? You know what her kids are mixed up in, don't you? Did you know he's a Democrat? Did you know she's a Trump supporter? Have you heard how much money these people have? Can you believe she would wear something like that? Can you believe how he talks as soon as he's not around church people? If this Jesus was really a prophet, he would see right through all of them. He wouldn't want them in our church. He wouldn't want them representing us and he wouldn't want their fake tears and their dirty lips on his holy feet. It's a good thing he's got all of us Pharisees here to keep score for him in case he forgets. God forgive our wicked minds. God have mercy on our wretched, judgmental hearts. Listen, from one center to another, I know this is heavy stuff, but just from one center to another, I've sat around here and thought every single accusation that I just said. My name is Zach and I struggle with being a very judgmental person. My name is Simon the Pharisee and sometimes I think God is lucky to have a guy like me on his team to have me as his scorekeeper. The word if comes along and it creates a crossroads. You have to decide whether Jesus is real or he's not. And this if in the sentence on the screen that Simon drops is one of the most dangerous ones in the world. He says, if Jesus was real, he would reject some people for being too far gone. If imagines a world that might exist, and even in Simon's wildest imagination, he cannot comprehend, it's not an option, that Jesus just might know exactly who she is. He just might know exactly what she's done and still welcome her act of love. In his imagination, that's impossible. Simon says, if this Jesus was a prophet, but his judgmental heart has already closed off that option because he, Simon, decided that this woman was too sinful to deserve Jesus' love. Look, the reason so many Christians think that church is judgmental is the exact same reason that we so often act like Simon the Pharisee and try to tell Jesus who is and isn't allowed through the door. The reason is because we forget what this place is. We forget what church is for. Jesus is crystal clear. The church is not a resort. It's a hospital. We're not here because we're good people. We're here because we know we're not. And we can't be no matter how hard we try. And Jesus came along and loved us anyway and saved us regardless. And so we worship at his feet. We bring him our tears week after week as we realize again and again just how massive our debt really is before he wiped it clean. You know who doesn't belong here? You know who doesn't belong in church who shouldn't come through that door? The healthy, the righteous. If you're self-sufficient, if you're good enough, If you don't need saving, you are wasting your time in church. You have no reason to worship a God of salvation or to learn about a Savior who came to call not the righteous, but the sinners. I don't know about you, but I need help. I can't quit judging people, and I need help. I need a Savior. I'm a slave to my secrets. I'm addicted to my habits and I need help. I need someone who can free me from it. My life without Jesus Christ is unmanageable. It is unbearable. Without him, it's pointless and it's hopeless. And if you want to judge me for saying that, that's fine. I'll be waiting here with open arms when you realize you're the same way. That's what we do here. We'll welcome you with open arms into this broken family of recovering sinners who get together week after week trying to be better together. This series is called Lord, If It's You. We've been talking a lot about us this morning. So let's end with what's important, the reason we're here. Let's talk about Jesus. Just picture in this story the ocean of love in his eyes when he looks at the tender sinner weeping at his feet. But don't forget the unshakable love in his voice when he's addressing the arrogant sinners who are questioning his mercy. Jesus, the one, the only one who has a complete and accurate list of every sin committed by every sinner in this room, he is the one who is qualified to judge, not you. Jesus, the one who can read hearts, he's qualified to judge hearts, not you. Jesus, the one who took every single sin committed by all of us on his back, carried it up, Calvary, and died for all of those sins. He's the one who can remember what they are, and he doesn't need your help keeping score. Jesus, who will never rule anybody out. He doesn't give up on anyone, no matter how big their debt is. Jesus finally turns to the woman at the end of the story. After he's done ripping Simon's ego to shreds, he turns to the woman and he finally talks to her. And as soon as he starts talking to her, she has his undivided attention. He never talks to Simon again. He never talks to anybody else in the room. Once he's done addressing the unbelief in the room, he turns to the believer and he says to her the greatest sentence she'll ever hear in her life. He says, your sins are forgiven. In that moment, when she felt the forgiveness of God washing over her, do you think she cared about Simon sitting across the room judging her? Do you think she even noticed? Do you think it bothered her at all that she was in this room full of fancy, clean, judgmental sinners? No. She had just received forgiveness for those sins from the only person qualified to do it. There's no chance that she was worried that these other people were judging her. If you're here this morning, and you've been hurt by judgmental Christians. You've had Christians stand between you and the door and try and keep you out. This woman's response is your model today. Listen for the voice of Jesus, and don't let the voices of his followers drown him out. Find your way to his feet, no matter what setting he is in, no matter who you have to go through, no matter what, no matter how you have to humble yourself. And if you're like me, if your own judgmental heart needs to repent and needs to fall at his feet, Jesus has the same message for you in this story as he had for the woman. Your sins are forgiven. Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Let's pray. Jesus, we come before you and ask for forgiveness for times that we judge our fellow servants. Please cure our hearts of judgmental attitudes, of trying to keep score, of trying to sort people and figure out who's in and who's out. Let us only listen for your voice. God, I pray that for everybody in this room, for every member of your church in the world, that we would present no obstacle to people who are seeking you, that they could see you and hear you clearly and that we wouldn't get in the way. Thank you for forgiving us of a debt that we could never pay. Help us to see it and understand it and to love you more. In your name, amen.